electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange on this Monday. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead. Yields were on the move higher overnight. I mean, the latest look, they're muted, but we hit some significant levels, almost 15-year highs ahead of the Fed's meeting this week, even though they're widely expected to pause. Our market guest warns it's not good news for stocks, and investors who think otherwise live in a fantasy world. He's here to explain what he means by that and the one sector where he's seeing opportunity. Plus, what's the cost to the rest of the economy if the strikes continue against the big three automakers? Rapid ratings James Gellert is back. He's crunched the numbers and he sees the perfect storm forming on the horizon. He tells us where and who could feel it the most. And the window for Bob Iger to get a good deal for ABC may be closing. So says one of our guests. We'll have the latest on Disney later this hour. Let's begin, though, with the markets. And you can see we do have green, some modest gains here, uh, almost identical in percentage terms with the Dow up 96 points, the S&P up 12, and the Nasdaq up 29. And again, this comes despite the headwind of higher yields. We'll focus on the 10-year. At last check, that one was about 4.31%. But overnight, upwards of 4.35%. You could blame it on Japan. Uh, but the point remains, if we were to close up there, and we've backed it off of it somewhat, would be the highest closing level since November of 2007. So again, this is the area to watch. Losses on instruments like the TLT, that ETF that for years had outperformed the market, are growing and are gathering the mood of investors. Also want to just point out the short end is kind of a sticky higher as well, over 5% on the two-year, almost 45 for the five. We begin this hour with the latest on the auto workers' strike. Ford and Stellantis are back at the bargaining table after holding talks over the weekend. GM was there yesterday. Shares of all three are lowered today, 1% to 2%. Much will depend on just how long it takes to reach an agreement. Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen told CNBC this morning it's too soon to tell the damage to the broader economy. I think it's premature to be making forecasts about what it means for the economy. The important point, I think, is that the two sides need to narrow their disagreements and uh, to work for a win-win, a contract that's good, good for the workers and for the industry as well. So how are the negotiations going? Phil LeBeau is outside the Jeep plant in Toledo, Ohio, where UAW members are on strike. Phil, what can you tell us? Kelly, I'd say that the negotiations are going slow. If you read the comments from both sides, and if you look at how far apart they are, there's not a whole lot of progress. In other words, we don't expect an agreement anytime soon. Now, that could change, but at this point, here's what we're expecting. You have got a couple of things happening. First of all, the UAW president, Sean Fain, said over the weekend, the offers that are out there calling for pay raises over four and a half years of 20 or 21 percent, approximately, he says those are a no-go. As you mentioned, Ford and Stellantis, back at the negotiation table today, have gotten no read as to whether or not there was substantial progress there. And the White House is sending a team to Detroit, not to mediate, but to facilitate discussions between the UAD, UAW, and the big three automakers. This strike has stopped 15% of big three U.S. production. It's approximately 12,700 UAW members who are on strike. 
5,800 here in Toledo at the Jeep plant, which is owned by Stellantis. As you take a look at shares of Ford, keep in mind that the UAW counterpart in Canada, Unifor, its contract with Ford expires at midnight. There could be a strike tomorrow. They may extend negotiations, but that is something that we could see uh, develop tomorrow, which would put a little more pressure on Ford. They don't have a ton of facilities in Canada, but they do have some. And then you've got GM and Stellantis. By the way, they are after Ford when it comes to negotiations with Unifor north of the border. Kelly, at this point, it's one of those cases where we're going to see discussions Pretty much on a regular basis is my expectation, but I'm not getting any sense that they are making quick progress in terms of reaching agreements. No, and it sounds like workers are pretty pleased with a lot that the UAW has been doing. Uh, the way that they don't even tell the workers, I guess, where they're going to strike, it's kind of a surprise to everybody. It sounds like some of the older workers want the young workers to access the same benefits that they've had and feel that this disparity needs to be redressed. So it sounds like, again, in the very yeah. early days, you know, there's there's a, an attitude of let's we're in this together and let's wait it out. Kelly, I cannot tell you how many UAW members I've talked to either last week or I've talked to some today who have said the wage tiers, it has got to go. Those were put in place when the bankruptcies happened for GM and Stellantis and then Ford obviously gets a similar contract. So back in the 2009-2010 timeframe, they were put in place so that there would be lower labor costs, at least initially as they were hiring workers. And that made sense at that time, given where the economics were for the big three. It doesn't make sense anymore, according to most of the workers. Almost everybody I've talked with, Kelly, veterans who have been in the UAW for years have said it's ridiculous that there are some people making eight, ten, twelve dollars more than the person working right next to them. And they're doing the exact same job. Right. And I think, Phil, some of the numbers making the rounds are pretty eye popping. Uh, does this is this correct? And these come from Wells Fargo that the big three's current total labor costs are sixty six dollars an hour. That includes benefits. If the demands are met, they right. say that would grow to one hundred and thirty six dollars an hour. It's obviously dramatically higher than, for instance, what Tesla is paying. Well, that's if it's everything goes to $136 uh, an hour. If, if they don't get everything that they're asking for, it's going to be dramatically lower. And that's the expectation, that it's going to be somewhere between that 66 and 136 Look, most people are focused on a percentage increase over four and a half years of being somewhere around 25%. That's the prediction of those who are who are familiar with this in the auto industry, these negotiations. Doesn't mean that's going to be the final resolution, but that's the expectation. Still a hefty increase, uh, but certainly not the 40% that the UAW is pushing for right now. All right, Phil, for now, we'll leave it there. Thank you so much, our Phil Abo in Ohio today. Now, while the cost of a projected strike for the big three are pretty straightforward to calculate, the walkout poses bigger risks to auto suppliers the whole supply chain and the U.S. economy overall. Joining me now is James Gellert. He's executive chairman of the financial health data firm Rapid Ratings. Jim, it's good to see you again. And what what stands out to you right away as you start looking through the ripple effects of this? Kelly, good to be with you again. Uh, You know, look, anytime there's a strike, there are two major parties that are facing off. And then there is a lot of unintended secondary consequences to uh, to a lot of people and a lot of companies. In this case, I think it will mostly be uh, private company suppliers as you go up the supply chain, because the the big three are in pretty good shape uh, from a financial health ratings perspective. 
Uh, you've got uh, Stellantis at the top at an 89 on our 100-point scale. That's a real solid place to be, GM, uh, second at a 66. But then when you look at the Tier 1 suppliers to these companies, they're all pretty in pretty good shape as well, the Bosch's, Lear's, uh, Denso's, and so forth. But when you keep going up the chain, you get into private companies, and private companies have been pinched in a whole slew of ways for the last three to four years. And, uh, and they're going to have a lot of fallout from this. Is there any way to gauge kind of, you know, um, for every one worker, you know, I was this out there at, at a big three company, maybe there's six others who are affected kind of up and down the supply chain. I'm just trying to get my arms around the scope of this, because in the past, the big three was a huge pillar, huge, enormous pillar of the U.S. economy, its whole supply chain. I don't know if that's shifted, if it's diminished with the rise of EVs and the location now elsewhere of, of where cars are produced. Well, I, I agree. I think it has shifted, certainly geographically. A lot of the top tier ones, uh, for instance, are non-U.S. companies. There still are some, but many of them are U.S. subsidiaries of non-U.S. companies. So the supply chain itself is global, no doubt about it. The workers are global. The union uh, characteristics of those workers, of course, are very different because m many of them are not unionized, certainly not U.S. unionized. But when you start talking about EV, you really throw a whole different dimension in here because uh, EV uh, production requires fewer suppliers. The uh, The drivetrain of an EV is much simpler than it is for an ICE engine. And uh, therefore, as everyone is looking forward, they are uh, they're trying to calculate just how many suppliers and how to protect those suppliers uh, is going to be the, the, the real challenges. So I think we are at a bit of a seminal moment here. Shift in, uh, in auto production itself, certainly a perfect storm of issues that are affecting public and mostly private companies in the space. And then you throw the union, um, you, you throw the strike on top of it, and you've got a dynamic that is really could be uh, could be worse than COVID from a supply chain perspective, depending how long it goes on. Do you think the suppliers would ultimately be putting more pressure on the union? You know, it reminds me a little bit of what's going on with Drew Barrymore's show right now, if you'll forgive the analogy, because she wanted to keep going to save the jobs of other people involved with her show's production, even while respecting the strike. And so at some point, do you think that other parts of the auto industry could say, hey, even while we support your goals, the rest of us are at risk here if this doesn't wrap up? And at what point in terms of weeks or months do you think that might come? Uh, I'm sure Drew would be thrilled she got a CNBC mention today, uh, Kelly. <laughs> Um, look, I, I think there, there's an ecosystem here of players upstream and downstream uh, that uh, have a lot of vested interests together. There's no doubt about it. But you've got the two powerhouses, the OEM or three, uh, the three major U.S. OEMs and uh, the UAW going uh, at loggerheads. Everyone else plays a backseat to that. But when you think about the supply chain challenges, the smaller suppliers, the private companies in particular, they don't have that kind of leverage on the OEMs. If their costs go up as they are from a labor perspective, from a cost of goods perspective, and absolutely from a cost of capital perspective, you throw all those three things on. They don't have the ability to pass those costs on to the OEMs. The OEMs won't sustain it. They won't tolerate it. So you have a problem where, as you go further up into the private companies, they get weaker because of all of these elements of this perfect storm, but they don't have the uh, they don't necessarily have the staying power. And if you keep in mind the uh, the dynamics over the last few years, where companies have had very ready access to capital, very cheap cost of that capital, and then through COVID, an injection of even cheaper capital to sustain smaller businesses, that has allowed a lot of companies to survive. Whereas their financial health ratings. 
uh, their financial health is actually deteriorating hmm. and their core strengths over a, over a, a looking at out two to three years, our core health scores have deteriorated for most of these companies even more. So private company suppliers in the auto sector is actually our lowest rated group across all industries. So wow. they've faced a lot of strain and they've been sustained by the excess capital as that capital is harder to get and costs more. It's going to be a real challenge for the OEMs to manage those supply chains and for those suppliers to handle yet another exogenous shock like the strike. So then I want to make sure I heard what you said, that private auto chain suppliers are amongst the most fragile in your entire coverage universe. Let me ask you, Jim, about one related piece of news as well. Over the weekend, we learned that BMO, the, the Canadian bank, is apparently backing away from its uh, support of auto financing. So, you know, at a time when, you know, m- most people just experience this as high ticket prices, you know, uh, okay, is my car on the lot or not? You seem to be saying that there have been deeper problems building in the auto supply chain actually for quite some time. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And when you throw on that uh, consumer finance challenges, either uh, financiers backing out or just the high cost of financing, whether you're leasing or buying a car, I do think we're going to see a uh, an impact to gross sales across all types of uh, types of cars. You've seen a little bit of of the used car market uh, pricing come off a bit, but you may see that post-strike kind of bouncing back a little bit as people are looking to uh, either buy used cars instead of new or hold on to cars for a longer period of time and and, uh, delay upgrades because the cost of cars is simply going up and it's out of reach for a lot of people. That has, again, a ripple effect all the way up through. So the, the UAW has a real vested interest, I think, to Uh, to get through this negotiation quickly, and the OEMs have a real interest in getting through this quickly. Hmm. That is never necessarily a good recipe for people actually getting through something quickly, but uh, the market itself will certainly benefit if this uh, ends with a reasonable resolution pretty quickly. All right, Jim, thanks so much uh, for joining us, giving us the fuller story here. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Jim Gellert with Rapid Ratings. Now, speaking of strikes and shutdowns, the U.S. government could itself be next. We're less than two weeks away from a possible shutdown with funding set to expire at the end of the month or run out, I should say. Oppenheimer's chief investment strategist John Stoltfus downplaying the drama. He writes few politicians are likely to opt for a decision that could result in political career suicide by voting to shut down the U.S. government. But of course, we've seen it happen many a time before. Let's get out to Emily Wilkins. She's on Capitol Hill with the latest for us. Emily, what do you hear? Well, Kelly, lawmakers might say that they don't want to shut down, but we seem to be headed for one. We are less than 13 days away from the government shutting down. And at this point, while well, we have gotten an agreement between uh, two different groups of Republicans who have come together and said, hey, we have a plan going forward. It's not clear that that plan is actually going to be able to get to the finish line. The details of the plan released this weekend include a number of different things, such as an 8% cut for domestic programs, not including military and veterans programs, as well as several items for the border. The Republicans want to begin rebuilding that border wall, and they want to put limits on asylum. However, even though this agreement shows a step forward, not everyone is on board. There have been a number of concerns from hardline Republicans who say that this deal does not go far enough. A Congressman Matt Rosendale tweeted over the weekend saying that this policy was a continuation of Nancy Pelosi 
Pelosi's policies and Joe Biden's budget. Uh, you also had Congressman Matt Gates come out and also threatened to vote against uh, this bill. And he's adding even one more factor to the mix. He says that in addition to voting against it, if McCarthy was to work with Democrats on a bill, he would do a procedural move to try and remove McCarthy from his leadership position. That just complicates things all around. But the fact of the matter is, is that even if Republicans are able to get this stopgap measure through the House this week, it is certainly dead on arrival in the Senate, where a lot of Democrats are just not supportive of these immigration policies. And Kelly, that means that with less than two weeks out, we still don't have a solution for funding the government before September 30th. And that's where we'll leave it uh, at a crossroads we've been at many a times before, and we'll see where the events take us. Emily, thank you very much. We appreciate it today. Emily Wilkins. Still to come, bond yields on the rise with a 10-year nearing fresh 16-year highs before pulling back. Why that's bad news for stocks ahead of Wednesday's Fed meeting. And investors who say otherwise, they're living in fantasy land. That's next. Plus, from Tesla to Iran and Taiwan, geopolitics dominating the headlines this weekend. Our rundown with Atlantic Council CEO Fred Kemp. We should call it foreign exchange. And as we head to break, let's get a quick check on the markets with the Dow hanging on to a 72-point gain despite swinging between losses and gains all session long. Modest increases as well for the S&P and NASDAQ. The Russell's underperforming down a third of 1% as regional banks lag. And the yield on that 10-year, 431. We're back after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. The 10-year Treasury yield rising earlier ahead of the Fed meeting this week, approaching its highest level if it closed up there since 2007. That was around 435. We're down at 431 right now. My next guest says investors who think stocks can continue to do well with the Fed's mantra of higher for longer are like Barbie living in fantasy land. Joining me now is Cole Smead, CEO and portfolio manager of Smead Capital Management. Always appreciate a good Barbie reference, Cole. Welcome. Thank you. Good to, good to be here with you, Kelly. So, you know, this is the, the biggest debate. I mean, a, literally like a, a $20 trillion debate on how big the number is. You know, do, do interest rates stay up here or not? And you guys are firmly in the camp of they will. Um, and walk us through why you think that is and, and what, what it would really mean. Yeah, it's a great question, Kelly. And uh, I'm also having the blessing of coming to you guys from uh, Bridgelines Base Camp here. This is Dave Duffield of Workday's, uh, you know, third iteration in his successful career. And um, so it's, it's good to be here. Let's just put it this way, Kelly. Um, I'm 39 years old. In my working career, um, there's really only one other instance of short-term interest rates sitting at this level, which was back in 2007, um, before things fell apart. And so we look at, we look at this as we've had a 500-plus basis point uh, rate rise on the short end of the curve. And in effect, the long end of the curve is saying 
we're not going to have to deal with any inflation going forward. If you look at the tips market, it's yielding 2%. AAA corporate bond yields are sitting at 5 So people have priced in 3% inflation. Anything worse than that in inflationary terms is very tough for stocks. If you go back, back and look at the valuations, looking back to the high of 21, we really haven't greatly changed stock valuations relative to interest rates. And again, you know, Barbie didn't want to live in fantasy land uh, either. Um, I just think there's way too many Kens out there that think they're going to be just fine. You have a lot of picks in the energy space. Uh, that's that's no accident. I, I, I'm sure you're looking around, you know, and obviously we've talked with Bill about the home builders. I mean, I, yeah. I actually, this would be a good juncture to ask if you're uh, kind of pulling in the horns on that, although I suspect I know the answer. So what are the areas and parts of the stock market that you do think can kind of hold up here? Yeah. For how poor it is for the broad indice, to your point, it doesn't. we're not saying all stocks have to do poorly. That's not the big idea. The big idea is it's the composition of the S&P 500. So to your point, I'll give you a couple uh, other instances where we had this. It was called the 1970s. Real returns for stocks were very poor. You lost real money then. And then the 2000s. And interestingly, going back to those two prior eras, despite the fact the S&P lost real money, investors got fabulously wealthy in the energy business. I, would, I, I, I believe we're probably the most bullish people on energy equities out there in the stock picking world. Yeah. And yet, at the same time, we're bringing people up to speed about how excited they should be, how high the returns on capital are, how good the capital allocation is. And, and you can find return on equity as good as technology companies out there in the stock market and the energy business. But because it's asset intensive um, or it's not asset light, they're unwilling to even look at it. So I hear you, and you guys were ahead of Berkshire on Oxy and on a lot of other things going on in the energy space. But I look at it and say, well, but from a 30,000-foot uh, point of view, the world is moving away from fossil fuels. And so are these stocks ever going to command uh, you know, a price that respects the return power that they have? I know it sounds ludicrous to ask, yeah. but it's like, you know, will, that, will, will their um, – Will their going away, uh, their extinction, sort of, you know, just just hand, handicap what people can get here? Or if they try to keep up and, and diversify into the other businesses, then they get crappier results. Yeah, humans solve the problems that they want to solve ultimately. So let's just theorize that we've decided that carbon's a bad thing. Um, well, we'll solve carbon. That's the history of human ingenuity. Mm -hmm. And that will never change uh, as long as, as humans are on this planet. So I point that out because now the question would be, if we solve carbon, who benefits the most? The irony to that answer is it will keep carbon businesses in business for a longer tail than people ever thought. So that's, I think, as you look at carbon capture and all these other forms, um, you could see a shorter tail if we don't solve carbon, um, not because there's not demand. Demand yeah. continues to grow. Um, even in coal. I mean, coal is not oil, but yet demand is growing in, in Asia and Africa. It's not growing in yeah. Western culture. No, okay? and Peabody so, has been a good example of a stock that was left for dead and, and not in the time. But, that but we there's have, no market cap there, Kelly. That's right. the irony. It's like the, the big institutional players, the big mutual fund companies, they're trapped out of this. I would I, I just look at this as it's a great small investor opportunity or firms that have the ability to move capital around like we do. What a blessing for our investors. And most of the investable world is completely trapped out of this. Thank God. <laughs> it's a really interesting point that now makes me think back to Philip Morris and again what uh, that stock did for investors for a very long time uh, after yeah. the the big settlement in the 90s. Okay, quick final question on Lennar, just because it just had, if I'm not mistaken, had a tough reaction to earnings. This is still a name that screens very highly for you guys. Homebuilder yeah. confidence is now starting to kind of pivot in reverse. Do you stick with it here? Follow Stuart Miller. Okay, he's letting the street know we are going to continue to build 
even to the detriment of short-term margins right. because the need is so large, they're playing the long game and all the Wall Street analysts are focused on what's gonna happen in the next six months. They're being foolish. Follow Stuart Miller. He's a brilliant capital allocator in the space and he's many billions richer than the people that are criticizing it. All right, Cole, thanks. Always appreciate your time. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Cole Smead with Smead Capital Management. We'll have more on the home builders in a little bit. In the meantime, don't miss our special coverage of the Fed decision this Wednesday, live from Washington, D.C. Tyler and I will both be there. The show starts at 1 p.m. Eastern right here on The Exchange. And coming up, home builder sentiment is doing something it hasn't done in seven months. And with mortgage rates hanging on at seven and a quarter percent, I bet you can guess what that is. Those higher rates weighing on the ITB home construction ETF in September, down five percent for its worst month in a year. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Apple leading the way up more than 2% today. Despite today's gains, though, Apple is having its worst month since December and tracking for back-to-back monthly losses for the first time this year. We're back after this. From their innovative practice facility to unmatched views from the fairway, the PGA of America is helping lower scores and elevate fan experiences with 5G solutions from T-Mobile for Business. Together, we're using AI-powered analytics to expand coaching tools and bringing fans closer to the pros with 5G-connected cameras. This is game-changing innovation. This is the PGA of America with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to The Exchange. Here's the markets hanging on to quarter point gains across the board today. Dow high up 106, low minus 73. We're up 84 at the moment, led by Apple. Some of the movers we're watching this hour include shares of JetBlue down more than 5% today. You could argue for no real reason. And even more significantly, hitting their lowest level in over a decade. That's right. This chart goes back all the way to 2012. We're talking about a less than $5 stock. The rest of the airlines and the Jets ETF are moving lower as well with some headwinds on this space. Of course, you saw them lower earnings uh, guidance for the third quarter. We talked about that last week. The red continues today with even United and Delta down a little less than 2%. Retail is also taking a hit with Target down 3% to its lowest level since the summer of 2020. 3% drop today. Dollar General, Dollar Tree, those stocks part of the sell-offs. We're talking about 2019 lows for some of these names. Uh, Dollar General, that is, whereas Dollar Tree, Pfizer, and J.M. Smucker, these stocks are all at 52-week lows right now. Let's also take a look at Clorox, which is back at its levels we saw in about February, so not quite as bad. But it's now warning that last month's cyber attack could result in a material hit to first quarter results. That cyber attack, they said, is still causing widespread disruption to operations uh, as they've been struggling to kind of bring those systems back online and looking for other ways uh, to keep procedures going. For more on that story, head over to CNBC.com. Clorox shares down about a third of a percent today. Over to Tyler Matheson now for a CNBC News update. Tyler. Kelly, thank you very much. Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu is meeting with businessman Elon Musk to discuss artificial intelligence. They are meeting at the Tesla plant in California and both pledged to focus talks on artificial intelligence. The visit comes as Musk faces accusations of tolerating anti-Semitic posts on the X platform and the Israeli leader is confronting political opposition at home over a judiciary overhaul. 
Taiwan says the Chinese military is harassing the island after Beijing sent 103 warplanes in a 24-hour period to buzz around the defense perimeter. The defense ministry in Taiwan says this is a daily record in recent history. China claims Taiwan is part of its territory and has been increasing the number of military drills around the island as tensions grow between the two and with the U.S. California is suing oil and gas giants for allegedly deceiving the public about the risks of fossil fuels. The lawsuit seeks the creation of a fund to pay for recovery efforts following national, natural disasters. The industry trade group, the American Petroleum Institute, says climate policy should be debated in Congress, not in a courtroom. Kelly, back to you. All right, Tyler, thank you, and I will see you soon. Tyler Matheson. Coming up, the foreign policy headlines are coming fast and furious today. We'll run through them with Atlantic Council CEO Fred Kemp. He joins me next here on The Exchange. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Exchange. We're kicking off the week with some big geopolitical headlines. Five Americans wrongfully imprisoned in Iran for years were released this morning as part of a $6 billion prisoner exchange with the U.S. It comes as the United Nations General Assembly is kicking off this week, with President Biden set to speak tomorrow. Over in China, embattled property developer Country Garden faces another $15 million interest deadline. And Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan is inviting Elon Musk to build his next Tesla factory in Turkey as the Wall Street Journal reports that Saudi Arabia and Tesla are in very early talks to build an EV factory there as well. But Musk earlier today refuted that report on Twitter or X, saying the story is, quote, utterly false. Let's make sense of all these headlines with Fred Kemp. He's president and CEO of the Atlantic Council. Let's start with Musk, Fred. Why not? Uh, geopolitics are now the order of the day for him, I guess. Yeah, so uh, it's... Uh Rainy, it's gridlocked in New York. It must be the U.N. General Assembly. But for all the heads of state you have around here, everyone seems to want to meet with Elon Musk. You know, he's got six uh, gigafactories, four in the U.S., uh, one in Germany um, and, uh, and one in China. And, and he's looking at Mexico. So he talked to Erdogan. Erdogan would like to have one of these. You've got the French, the Spanish and the Italians talking to him. India may, be, may figure in this. Um, but uh, Turkey's really interesting because it's had a hundred year history with Ford. It manufactures, has a big population itself. It's, it's used to automobile manufacturing. It can ship to third countries. Uh, so that could have some, that, that these talks could have some legs. So we also had the report, uh, you know, that uh, there was supposed to be this big defense deal between Saudi Arabia and Raytheon or RTX now uh, to kind of build this big uh, um I guess what you call missile defense system uh, for them, and then that fell apart at the last minute over sanctions. I guess my question is, where should the U.S. not that he's going to ask them want Musk to build these factories, and, and where where would it not uh, like to see this kind of investment? Well, I, I, I'm not sure Elon Musk listens to anybody about where he should build the factories. Uh, but the fact of the matter is, we it's always we, we talk a lot about friend shoring. It's always great when we have this kind of setup with uh, like-minded countries or countries that we really want on our side. So that would be uh, that, that would be a really good outcome. In terms of Saudi Arabia, one of the things people aren't going to be talking about much this week is the whole prospect of uh, uh, normalization between Israel and Saudi Arabia. Now, that could be a huge breakthrough. And if you look at Saudi Arabia in that context, that could be one of the biggest foreign policy breakthroughs of the entire Biden administration. So that, that could play a role as well. 
Yeah, I'm just looking for a breakthrough that might get oil prices down uh, because that might be very much needed right now. So I'm curious how this all aligns. Uh, by the way, for those who are interested, Kathy Wood will be on Fast Money tonight, uh, maybe talking about Tesla and, and many other topics. Uh, you can catch that there around 5.30 p.m. Let me play for you uh, what else we heard this weekend. As we saw, and, and Tyler mentioned this in his news update, a record number of Chinese planes in the Taiwanese area, more than 100, uh, you know, close to the island. Former President Donald Trump was on Meet the Press yesterday where he refused to say whether or not he would provide military support to Taiwan against an invasion from China. Take a quick listen. I won't say uh, because if I said I'm giving away, you know, only stupid people are going to give that. I heard the other day De Sanctimonious said something about he was going to do this or he was going to do that. I say, well, why is he saying the strategy? You can't say that. So when you ask me that question, I would never say that because... You give away all your options. But you don't take it off the table. I don't take anything off okay. the table. Fred, what's your reaction to that? Well, look, we're at the beginning of an era of tension uh, with China. Uh, it has a slowing economy, so that's going to take some of its resources, unless they fix the, uh, the state control of the economy and the party's leadership, which I don't think is going to happen. That's going to be the case. But on the other hand, it's building up its military. It's uh, it's. Uh, ambitions are growing around the globe. And so what we need to do is a steady set of messaging to China and to our allies about China. And in the 2024 elections, uh, it could be anything but steady in that respect. And I think the, the, the Chinese can only smile a little bit when they see the messiness of our domestic politics. Uh, and, um, and I think President Trump is just playing true to form but what's really to be watched is will their autocratic system get its act together to run its economy or will our democracy get its act together in 2024 to be steadier and messaging who we are around the, the global stage? Yeah, some of those changes lately with Chinese military leadership certainly raised eyebrows about, uh, you know, just what is going on there in those ranks as they maybe prepare for, for more of an incursion. Go ahead. Oh. Oh, and the, defense, the, the fact that we've got a defense minister missing, and before that you had a foreign minister who was removed and a couple of generals on top of that. So there is some instability inside of uh, China for sure. It's so opaque that we really don't know what impact it's going to have in the end. But it does not help President Xi Jinping that his economy is slowing so much faster than one had anticipated. So there's a lot going on in, in, in that country. Uh, and sometimes we can't really influence that. What we can influence is what we do. So we have to be steady on with our alliances. We have to be steady with Ukraine. We have to take the commanding heights of technology. And most of all, we have to make our democracy work. That we can control. What we can't control is what's up and down in China. Sure. Let me ask you quickly about the U.N., which other than the traffic, there does seem to be some interest this year in the fact that, you know, obviously Putin and Xi are not there. But neither is Macron, neither is Sunak, neither is Modi. Why? Well, uh, uh, President Biden has the stage to himself. And so his speech will get a lot of notice. I think the UN, which used to be the place to come to take care of global affairs, uh, now we have what I call a, a, a muddled, uh, a muddled multi-alignment. So countries don't want to choose China. They won't, don't want to choose the U.S. You have a G7, you have a G20, you have the BRICS, you have the Abraham Accords, and so you're seeing this proliferation of regional and even global uh, uh, global organizations. And, and the United Nations is fighting for its own relevance. It's doing this at a time when climate, the planet is heating, um, and, uh, and they're not doing much to solve the war in Ukraine either. So just very finally, the second uh, leader of the UN, Dag Hammarskjöld, 
said the UN wasn't created to bring us to heaven. It's created to keep us from hell. But if you look at the war in Ukraine, it hasn't done a good job for that either. So it's really battling for its relevance. And so some people just wonder whether it's worth coming here. It's still wow. better to have it and not have it, but it, but, it, but it is fighting for its relevance. Yeah, I mean, I, I just have to dwell that the UN battling for its relevance feels like a big deal in, in some ways that are hard to maybe measure in the near term. Um, but but are worth sort of fuller treatment there on out. But I don't want to let you go, Fred, without quickly asking about this prisoner swamp. Uh, unlocking $6 billion of assets is a big number. What does that tell you about U.S.-Iran relations and about the prospect of being, freeing Evan Gershkovich? Look, the, the president's going to take a lot of hits for this. There's no doubt about it. But what it does underscore is the U.S. still cares about people. It still cares about human rights. It still cares about humanity. Uh, and uh, a lot of people will criticize the president for this kind of big price tag for some lives. But I still uh, I still think it shows what we stand for uh, in the world community vis-a-vis -vis Iran. The real question is, can the administration somehow influence China uh, so that Iran it doesn't uh, deliver as many weapons and as much wherewithal to Russia to continue to fight its war in Ukraine? I think that's the trilateral that I'm watching is this Russia-China Iran trilateral, which is becoming more and more troublesome. All right, Fred, thank you. I really appreciate it today. shedding a lot of light on a lot of different parts of the globe for us. Thank you. Thank you, Kelly. Fred Kemp from the Atlantic Council. Still to come, home builders feeling a little pessimistic for the first time in a long time, despite the continued need for more housing inventory. We'll tell you why and what it means for the housing stocks next. And as we go to break, take a look at the COVID trade. Despite the high numbers, you know, anecdotally around here, Moderna down eight and a half percent today. Pfizer, BioNTech, Novavax all lower. By the way, Moderna could be the best, or, I'm sorry, the worst day of the year. All this after Pfizer's CFO at a conference said the company expects just a 24% vaccination rate for boosters this year. Those numbers lower than investors were hoping. The exchange is back after this. Welcome back. The lack of homes for sale had been giving the nation's builders a boost in recent months, but higher mortgage rates seem to be finally taking their toll. Diana Olick is here on set with me in the house. Welcome with the, just in time <laughs> for what, what was the reading this month? Uh, the reading this month was not good. In fact, it's affordability is just hitting too hard. And as a result, builder sentiment went negative for the first time in seven months. It fell five points to 45 in September. That, according to the NAHB 50, is that line between positive and negative. And that follows a 6% six point drop in August. A year ago, sentiment was at 46. Now, builders are blaming, as we said, high mortgage rates, which went over 7% at the end of June and have not come back below that line yet. Seven point, I believe, to 3% today. As a result, builders are going back to incentives. 32% said they cut prices in September. That's compared with 25% in August and the largest share since December of last year. Average discount, 6%. Now, of the sentiment index's three components, current sales conditions fell six points to 51. Expectations for sales in the next six months also fell six points at 49. Buyer traffic, five points down to 30. Despite the drop in sentiment, though, builders say they're still benefiting from a lean existing home supply. A special question was added to the survey about who's buying, and builders said 42% of their buyers were first-time buyers. That's much higher than the historical norm, which, Kelly, is 27%. But I have to believe these are older first-time buyers that is with true. higher incomes. It, really interesting what they were saying about cutting prices. So I'm very curious if we start to see that effect nationwide, which right now we've kind of been seeing 
upward pressures. But I want to ask you as well, does this, is this because this is a broader universe than just, you know, if we think about the names that are in the Home Builder Index, do we have, would, would their trends be holding up a little bit better, you think? Well, so I was interested because Lennar did so well last week, right? So I'm thinking, why is Home Builder sentiment down if the big builders are reporting these fantastic earnings. Well, they broke it out for me. So they said that 12% of this sentiment index is the big production builders that just build 12%. Oh, just 12% wow. over 100 homes per year. So they broke it out for me. Very nice of them. Yeah. And they said, actually, that 12% only, their sentiment was also 45. Hmm. So that doesn't speak well to going forward that, you know, we're looking at past quarters when they were making deals when rates were down in the 6% range going forward. Will they be able to hold that up? Especially because one of the bull cases for owning the builders has been this growing market share thing where maybe they say the smaller players struggle with financing or with different things in this environment. They grow share, but that pessimism might suggest they stay on their back foot a little bit. Especially if they have to cut prices and do more incentives and buy down rates. Exactly. Diana, thank you. We sure. appreciate it. Diana Olick. Still ahead, Disney got a new bull on the street today after Ray J initiated coverage, but it ain't helping the stock much in today's session. It's still in the red. And while my next guest has a buy, he's says selling its TV business is key and the time to do so is now. We'll talk about that next. And a quick programming note, don't miss a CNBC special, CNBC Leaders with Ken Griffin, Sarah Eisen's exclusive sit down with a billionaire investor. He'll reveal why he's sitting on the sidelines for the 2024 Republican presidential primary. Big implications for that. It's all tonight at 8 p.m. Eastern. We're back in a moment. Welcome back to The Exchange. Disney getting initiated at Outperform over at Raymond James today, setting the potential for free cash flow generation, but acknowledging the headwinds from linear TV, which Bob Iger addressed in his interview with our David Faber back in July. That they may not be core to Disney, yeah. Now, there's clearly creativity and content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business and that has delivered great profits over the years is definitely broken. And we have to we and, and we have to call it like it is. And with interest for ABC from Nextstar Media and media mogul Brian, Byron Allen, my next guest says Iger shouldn't wait too long to get a deal done or it could backfire. Joining us is Barton Crockett, Internet and media analyst for Rosenblatt Securities. Barton, welcome. Why, why would it backfire if he waits this out? Well, I think what he said is that the, the model is broken. Um, the value will decline over time. Um, if the pressures continue to mount. So, um, you know, you, you talk about this asset right now. There are buyers out there today. Um, there might not be as many buyers tomorrow and the price not be, might not be as good. So I think uh, they've already said their position um, so they should act on it rather than leaving everyone who works there in limbo. You know, there's a thing in the housing market where they say the first offer is often the best offer. I don't, I don't right. know if realtors would agree that's true, but is that kind of what you're talking about? To a degree. I mean, the reason that they would sell a business that's been really profitable is secular pressure. And the secular pressure uh, will mount over time. It's not going to ease over time. And um, their minds are made up that they see this coming, so they should act on it. Um, and every day they wait is a day that the value could slip and the people who work there could uh, leave because they're concerned about the future. Are you surprised there haven't been any other bidders mentioned so far, Nexstar and Byron Allen aside? Um, I, I'm not terribly surprised because I don't know that they formally announced a process. Um, the other natural bidders could be private equity, um, and they may not be as public, you know, unless there's, you know, something publicly um, that Disney is running. Uh, Nexstar 
um, has talked about this in some conferences. Byron Allen, I think, you know, likes to position himself, um, you know, very prominently, maybe ahead of kind of the process. So, um, you know, I think it is where it is. I think they, if they're going to do this, they should move ahead with it. And how significant would the cash raise be for Disney and what might come next? Well, look, I, I think that there's, um, um, you know, their 80 percent kind of interest in ESPN plus the flanker kind of cable networks um, that could generate uh, 15 billion dollars for them. They could get, you know, close to six billion, maybe a little less for the ABC network and the TV stations, uh, which is not transformative for Disney from the cash raise. Um, it is transformative from the story because if you exit those businesses and you get a JV partner, let's say an ESPN, um, suddenly um, you're left with an equity that's really theme parks and content businesses as its core driver and streaming services. You know, and those are things that I think investors could get excited about. I think that would help sentiment for the equity, help the multiple, um, and help those people employed at Disney feel confident about their future. You'd feel excited about the streaming business? Um, I'm less uh, excited about the streaming business. I'm very excited about their theme park business, mm -hmm. um, which is generationally iconic. Um, they'll be talking about that more uh, this week. Um, you know, I'm very excited about their content library. Um, I think that streaming services um, will, you know, tend to um, consolidate around the largest platform. So Disney Plus is a great uh, focused brand right now. You know, over time, I'm not convinced that that doesn't become part of a larger tech platform. You know, I think that is the future. It doesn't have to be today. I think the street would see that, you know, in an equity. And, um, you know, and I think that that would be a story that people um, could get behind. Would you rather they not buy out the rest of Hulu, as some like Stephanie Link have, have suggested that she, she wishes they wouldn't? Yeah, look, I think that uh, um, I think they can manage um, whatever kind of um, comes at them from that valuation process. Um, you know, I am definitely more on the, the conservative side of how much I think Disney will have to pay relative to, to what Comcast has put out there. You know, we'll see. None of us really know until the thing is done. But um, look, I think that, uh, um, um, you know, Hulu, uh, I'd rather have them owning a controlling stake in Hulu, I think, than the TV networks. I think that's a good trade for them. I think that sums it up quite aptly. Barton, thanks for your time today. We appreciate it. Great. Thank Barton you. Crockett from Rosenblatt Securities. And that does it for The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 